1: I was recently in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where I visited a community health center in the north of the city.
2: That's Avantika Chilcote, an international correspondent at The Economist.
1: The point of going there was to learn about tuberculosis, which before COVID-19 took its crown, was the most deadly infectious disease in the world. So I'm here in Rio in Brazil, and I've just left the pretty well-off area of Ipanema and Copacabana where I've been staying to start the reporting on TB and between the grey day and where I'm going in the city, things are looking much grimmer. The TB clinic that I'm on the way to is in the north of the city. It's clearly a much less prosperous area, which tells you something about TB, I guess. Even driving up there from the wealthy south of the city, it was very clear I was going from a rich part of the city to a poor part. And TB rates in the wealthy parts are negligible. And in the slums and the favelas of Rio, the disease is a real problem. The clinic was totally rammed with people. There was old people, young people, entire families. They were all loitering around the reception waiting for help. And one doctor I spoke to called Larissa Hosa, she told me that they've noticed an uptick in TB cases there.
0: We we have more cases of TB now because people are beginning to live the lives after the the pandemic. And we're not thinking as much of COVID when we get patients with respiratory symptoms. So we are more aware to search for, for TB COVID, we're not so worried about COVID
1: anymore. In poor areas like the one where the clinic's based, COVID-19 totally devastated efforts to control TB. It's undone an entire decade of progress. And now it appears that TB is set to regain its crown as the most lethal infectious disease in the world.
2: Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist Science Correspondent. Today we'll look at how TB is surging again around the world, partly because the world's attention has been turned onto COVID-19. The experience of the pandemic in recent years, though, could also have a silver lining – there might be some lessons to learn on how to better tackle TB in the future. I'm here with our international correspondent, Avantika Chilcoti. Avantika, tell me why you've been reporting on tuberculosis and, and why your research took you to Rio de Janeiro.
1: So I've been interested in TB for a while. About 10 million people are infected with this disease every year. We know a lot about the bacteria that causes it. We have some drugs that can treat it. So I was just totally baffled about sort of why does it still kill so many people? Why do so many people still get it? And what I realized is that poor people are most at risk. Rio was a really interesting place to look at this because in the well-off areas of the city, TB isn't a problem. But you drive just five minutes and things are terrible. So it's just really clear in a city like Rio that TB is a poor person's disease.
2: And just about the disease itself, I mean, what does it do to patients?
1: So it's a bacterial infection. It's spread through the air. You inhale the TB bacteria, a bit like the COVID-19 virus. And it's really slow acting. So most commonly, it sort of settles in the lungs. People who get sick with it, they develop a fever, they start coughing, they have difficulty breathing. As the disease progresses, you end up sort of pale and very slim. You know, in the longer term, it causes lung damage and it eventually can kill you.
2: And how prevalent is it around the world?
1: The thing about TB is that about a quarter of the world's population are infected with a bacteria. It's sort of latent in them. 90% of people who get TB will never actually develop symptoms. Especially in the rich world, where people have clean, well-ventilated houses, where we eat well, cases are low. The 10% of people who get sick with TB are undernourished, and they generally have a weak immune system. So. If you're diabetic, if you smoke, if you're an alcoholic, you're more at risk. There's also a a real correlation with HIV-positive people. And this is all just to say that TB is a disease of poverty. Just eight developing countries, so India, South Africa, Nigeria, they account for two-thirds of all new cases.
2: And so what's the reason for the resurgence now? Why is it happening at this moment?
1: So the pandemic totally shattered global efforts to control TB. If you found yourself coughing or cold and tired, you're probably in lockdown not going to go to the doctors. And even once you went to the doctor, quite often there was confusion between COVID and TB. It took longer to get diagnosed. And in the process, treatment was delayed. The World Health Organization, the WHO, it reckons only 5.8 million TB cases were recorded in 2020, compared to sort of 7.1 million in 2019. That's not to say that less people were getting sick. It's to say that less people were being diagnosed. As part of my reporting, I spoke to Mel Spiegelman. He's the director of the TB Alliance. It's a not-for-profit group that aims to improve TB medicines and make them affordable. And Mel really explained why the pandemic had had an impact on TB.
3: TB hospitals have been closed around the world in order to make them into COVID hospitals, The lockdown has affected people's willingness or ability to get out, get diagnosed and get treated. And the amount of funding that's been made available for TB has suffered tremendously because of the necessity, as viewed by political people and others, to invest that money into COVID.
1: World leaders were really aiming for us to ramp up spending on TB. The goal was to spend, I think, $13 billion by 2022. And unfortunately, over the pandemic, we've been going in the wrong direction. So global spending on TB dropped from $5.8 billion in 2019 to just $5.3 billion in 2020. I mean, all of that is just far too little.
2: So COVID-19 obviously took much more of the attention of people and, and took the money as well, it seems. So what has the effect of that been on tuberculosis? On
1: After months of delay, people who were turning up to the doctors often were too sick to be treated. Those who were undergoing a sort of a a very lengthy treatment, you know, talking six months to one year, a few of them had abandoned their treatment. And you can see that coming through in the numbers. You know, still about 1.5 million people died of TB in 2020, according to the WHO, and that's more than died in 2019. This is the first year-on-year increase we've seen in a really long time. The WHO's new data is set to come out this week, and we'll see what's happened in 2021. But that number, the cases, the deaths, they're really expected to just ramp up in the years to come. And as Mel Spiegelman said, the situation is really dire.
3: As I look at the 2022 numbers and how they're evolving, I think in 2022, TB will reclaim that dubious distinction of again being the largest single killer from a single infectious disease.
2: Now, Avantika, you've said that TB spreads in a very similar way to SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind COVID-19, so in droplets through the air. So you would imagine that lockdowns where people are not interacting with each other, some places people are wearing masks, you know, these things might have kept the disease in check.
1: Yeah, I sort of thought that as well. But as Larissa Hozar from the TB clinic in Rio told me, What actually happened was that poor families were crammed into these tiny, poorly ventilated homes and TB spread really quickly.
0: The quarantine and COVID got worse for TB because people stayed more at home. And in our community, the the houses are, are very humid and with no windows and too much people living in the same place.
1: One thing I hadn't really realized till I went there was... The things that we think people started using in the pandemic, so hand sanitizers and masks, people there really aren't using them. They never could afford them. They could never get access to them. So a lot of that is just not relevant in the places where people are most vulnerable to TB.
2: So it sounds like the situation that people live in, things like poverty and hunger, these are the things that make TB such a persistent threat in certain parts of the world.
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly what makes this latent TB become an actual illness for so many people. So, as Mel Spiegelman of the TB Alliance told me, the reason why we're still battling this disease after hundreds and hundreds of years is because of who it affects and where it's most prevalent.
3: Number one, it's still a problem because it's a disease of the poor now. And number two, it's still a problem because it doesn't have anywhere near the resources that need to be dedicated to it in order to eradicate any disease on the face of the earth, which is what we're talking about, is if we really want to get into the range of what I'd call eradication, you know, just take a look at how few diseases have truly been eradicated and how difficult it is to do that. It requires a huge global commitment.
2: Okay, well, let's look at research and development then. How much is actually spent nowadays looking for treatments and cures for TB?
1: So this bit's totally fascinating to me, and the best way to explain it is just to compare it to COVID-19. So if you think about it, in the first year of the pandemic, over $100 billion was poured into R&D, into research and development around COVID-19 vaccines. By contrast, about $0.1 billion is spent per year on R&D into TB vaccines. I spoke to one very passionate TB researcher called Lucica de Tiu. She's head of the Stop TB Partnership, which works with over a thousand other organizations that are trying to eliminate TB as a public health problem. She explained to me what the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us when it comes to tackling infectious diseases like TB.
4: What did COVID show, and uh, there is absolutely no reason why we should not use this for TB, it showed, first of all, that money are not an issue once a public health threat especially an airborne pandemic, appears. What uh, showed us is that especially the novelty of it, because TB is also an airborne pandemic, right? But COVID uh, was the same, you know, affects the lungs. Uh, even some symptoms are similar. But the difference was that COVID represented a threat for the Big North. And uh, that's why I think the, the big push and the, the sudden availability of billions and billions of dollars to fight COVID, so it became very clear that money
1: are not an issue if there is the will. People like Lucika are trying to create that political will. They're trying to convince people in power that they really need to invest in TB.
2: Avantika, thank you. Uh, that's something we'll explore a little bit later on in the programme, along with how the extraordinary scientific effort that helped control the COVID-19 pandemic could hold some lessons for TB. First though, TB is an ancient disease. Evidence of it has been found in Egyptian mummies dating back 4,500 years. It was in 1881 that Robert Koch, a German physician, actually identified Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the bug that causes the disease. His discovery helped the germ theory of disease gain legitimacy. And it also highlighted the importance of hygiene into households across Europe.
5: Tuberculosis was such a big killer and there was a lot of conversation about whose job it is to contain, uh, because uh, New York was one of the first places to start prohibitive legislation on spitting.
2: That's Vidya Krishnan, the author of Phantom Plague, a book that examines the devastation caused by tuberculosis and its impact on human history, culture, and art.
5: New York wanted men to stop spitting because that's how the bacteria was spreading, and this is the early years of the germ theory. It was so difficult for uh, health departments in New York to uh, start any kind of behaviour change in men that the uh, burden was passed on to women because they were doing all the cleaning anyway. And the popular argument at that point was that uh, if women want to keep their children safe, they should not be wearing the trailing skirts that were common in Victorian fashion. They should wear shorter skirts because then that would not sweep the filth from the streets and into the houses. Uh, So TB has a lot to do with uh, changing our fashion as well.
2: And it wasn't just fashion that the disease would influence. The arts, too, have been shaped by TB, a disease that killed George Orwell, Frédéric Chopin, John Keats and countless others.
5: In the Victorian era, there was this very popular belief that it was, firstly, we did not know that it was uh, infectious disease. It was considered to be running in the family. And because people showed uh, similar symptoms, people thought that the dead ones were crawling out of the grave and infecting their loved ones uh, who were showing similar symptoms, which was then taken as proof that uh, this legend of uh, people crawling out of uh, plague pits, uh, because there were mass burials as well, was what was making whole villages and families sick. It birthed vampire legends, and in particular, it uh, birthed uh, Dracula, which it heavily influenced. Lucy Westenra, one of the main characters in the book and one of the first victims of Dracula, is uh, inspired by a woman called Mercy Brown. Uh, She was 19 when she died of TB, and she died in 1892. And Bram Stoker wrote the book in 1897, five years later. And uh, that that particular episode, Mercy Brown was buried, but she she died during winter, so she had to be kept in a crypt. And her body had not uh, decomposed in the time that she was uh, exhumed from her grave. And because she she had not decomposed entirely, which is completely understandable in a frigid uh, New England winter, uh, her family thought that uh, she was consuming the blood of her family members to stay alive. And it kind of uh, went into birthing vampire legends.
2: The stigma associated with dirt and the disease remained. And at the end of the 20th century, tuberculosis met a deadly collaborator, HIV.
3: At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it.
5: The HIV epidemic was this perfect tag team for TB to emerge back uh, because uh, the virus, HIV's uh, signature move is immunocompression. And uh, once the immunity is compressed, the bacteria tuberculosis ravages the body. So one of the things uh, health experts realized after the HIV epidemic was that TB was completely out of control, especially in countries with high uh, HIV burden, which is South Africa, uh, but also countries like India where uh, people live in very close proximity.
2: Today, the link between HIV and TB in many parts of the world only serves to exacerbate social stigma. And TB remains a huge killer. So what can the world do about it? That's coming up.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
2: Today on Babbage, we're talking about the resurgence of tuberculosis and how to better tackle the disease. The Economist's international correspondent, Avantika Chilkoti, has been exploring the impact of the condition in Latin America. She joins me once again. Avantika, as we've talked about, TB has been around for centuries. So when you were in Rio, what kinds of tools did the medical teams there have to actually diagnose and treat the disease?
1: That was really interesting, actually. So in the testing centre I went to in northern Rio, they were sort of attached to a community health centre it's in a really poor area and I was so surprised actually at what I saw. the
0: testing
5: of half of the
1: Rio. Wow. It wasn't some busy high tech lab with uh, you know, clever machines. It was a room that looked something between a school science lab and an industrial kitchen. There was microscopes and two people labelling test tubes. It was all pen and paper. And the doctors there still use a method of diagnosis that was invented in the 1880s. They're putting a patient's sputum, which is a fancy word for phlegm, under a microscope, and they're looking for the bacteria. It seems amazingly low-tech, especially when you compare it to some of the sort of COVID-19 tests that have been developed.
2: So that's the testing. Once patients were diagnosed with TB in the clinics you saw, what treatments were available to them?
1: The treatment for TB is incredibly gruelling. First start with sort of avoiding getting the disease. We only have one vaccine. It's the 100-year-old BCG jab, which is rarely given to people who are over 16 because there's little evidence that it works terribly well in adults. Just three new drugs have been approved by American regulators over the past 55 years. So if you get TB, the treatment options you have are honestly, so painful that it's a surprise anyone completes it. You take these ginormous pills, a handful of ginormous antibiotic pills every morning. And this can be a six-month treatment, it can be a one-year treatment. If you're facing a drug-resistant form of the bacteria, it can be even longer. It can involve painful injections. And the side effects are terrible. So if you're lucky, you might just be nauseous and have crippling joint pain. But I've heard stories of people who've lost their hearing, people whose livers collapse, whose kidneys collapse, and the complicated course of treatment has other issues, as Mel Spiegelman of the TB Alliance explained to me.
3: Because of a variety of biological factors, we still have not been able to figure out how to treat TB with less than probably three drugs. Resistant TB used to be treated with like eight drugs. And what happens when you treat a disease like TB with even three or four drugs, if the person doesn't take all the drugs, it also then encourages resistance to the drugs that they continue to take.
1: So that's what happens when microbes like bacteria and fungi evolve to defeat the drugs designed to kill them.
3: Drug resistance arises, number one, because if you don't take the regimen as prescribed, drug resistance will come up. Once someone has a drug resistant bug, they will transmit that to another person. And so now you get the promulgation of drug resistance in a community. Um, It's like the new variants with COVID. As the new variant takes over, that's the variant that becomes prominent in the community. That's I think we've all gotten real educated on in the last couple of years.
1: Over the past two years, countless TB patients have stopped treatment prematurely. So doctors are really now worried about the prospect of a new, highly contagious form of TB emerging that doesn't respond to the drugs we have. What you have at the moment is courses of treatment that involve patients either visiting a health clinic every few days or having a community health worker visit them at home every few days to literally watch them swallowing the pills because no one trusts that you will continue taking these pills. It's just not a sustainable way to work. Forget pandemics and lockdowns in war zones when you have extreme weather events. There's just so many ways for this form of treatment to be disrupted.
2: Now, everything you've described is incredibly impractical, as you say, but also kind of necessary in a way if you want to defeat this other major healthcare problem that's sort of in the background to all this, which is antimicrobial resistance. I mean, it's it's creeping up on all sorts of diseases around the world. How common is it when it comes to TB and can TB researchers identify when it's happening?
1: So the TB bacteria mutates in a pretty similar way to COVID. It's to do with evolutionary pressure that means that some mutations will dominate and different strains of bacteria emerge. Currently, there's more than a dozen antibiotics and other drugs that are used to treat TB. The way that researchers generally determine if a strain that's causing a particular case of TB is resistant to a particular drug is that they culture microbes from a sputum sample in a Petri dish and they just sprinkle the drug on it and they observe with a microscope if the bacteria are multiplying. If they are multiplying, then the bacteria is resistant to the drug. It's quite a basic lab experiment and it's been used for at least a century. It's slow, it uses a lot of resources, and it doesn't actually tell you that much about the bug.
2: Now, what's surprising to me about that is that, you know, the last few decades have seen, you know, a massive revolution in biotechnology and things like understanding diseases and genomic sequencing. The prices of these things are really, really low. And you can imagine that even in relatively poor places that you would have the technology to sequence genes of bugs of all sorts. Has any of that technology reached the uh, detection and treatments of TB?
1: So actually, in the reporting, I interviewed a woman called Josefina Campos. She's the director of the Genomic and Bioinformatics Center at Argentina's National Reference Laboratory. And she's been using genomic sequencing to improve the detection and monitoring of resistance in her country. It's a technology, like you say, which came into the public consciousness thanks to COVID that's used to determine mutations that are causing a particular strain.
6: For whole genome sequence, what we do is extract the DNA, so the genomic material of the bacterial, and through a process of trying to understand that DNA, we add some tags and read that DNA. So it's like reading the footprint of the bacterial. so have all the information at once. So that allowed us to understand not only the difference that leads to a resistance to a treatment, but also the relationship between different pathogens that are in different patients.
1: Before the pandemic, the team in Argentina started a project with the European Bioinformatics Institute to better understand TB drug resistance.
6: We started that before the pandemic, thinking to have a case explained to the stakeholders why investing in this is so important and during the pandemic whole genome sequence has became a everyday thing for variant tracking for SARS-CoV-2 so right now in 2022 tv genomic surveillance has been implemented and that has to be directly with SARS-CoV-2 genomic response, being able to reproduce that. In Argentina, we invested a lot in whole genome sequence during the pandemic and actually have improved our laboratory to become a center and have a lot of genomic capacity that we haven't had before the pandemic. So it has a major impact in technology, in diagnosis and in the TB response as well.
1: It's a much less laborious technique, it's more accurate, it's more cost-effective than traditional methods, and it can piggyback off of other resources that have been used to fight COVID-19 in Argentina. These labs they have, they can now be used to detect many different types of pathogens, not just SARS viruses or TB bacterium.
2: Okay, well, now this is very exciting because genetic sequencing of viruses and bacteria are exactly the right way to understand how things are spreading and to understand how things like antibiotic resistance is also spreading in a particular area. Now, this can all tell clinicians much more about how a particular mutation might affect the course of the disease, but also which drugs might or might not work and if there are particularly worrying strains that are about to emerge, right?
1: That's right. And DNA sequencing also crucially makes the surveillance of outbreaks possible in a way that old methods didn't. Josephine explained that to me.
6: DNA sequence allowed us not only to understand the resistant pattern, but also when two mechobacterium tuberculosis come from the same place or are pretty much alike, their DNA is also much alike, and allowed us to compare, not only across the country to understand geographical patterns, but also in a global scale. So the idea of also comparing what's going on in the country to the rest of the world was quite tempted and very useful with whole genome sequence as well. And that's why we partnered with the European Bioinformatics Institute to use some of the tools to improve not only national surveillance but also global surveillance as well.
1: Understanding resistance better is the first step towards better treatment and protecting populations against a superbug that could cause a pandemic. The big worry for doctors now is that you could end up with a variant that we don't have any drugs for, that we cannot treat. And if that starts to spread around the world, we're in real trouble. The first step in protecting against that kind of eventuality is understanding these bugs better. And if if we can figure that out, then it might not spread and get out of control as quickly as COVID
2: did. Now, surveillance is obviously incredibly important, but to use that information properly what you need are a range of treatments available that can have impact on different variants. I just wonder, what what does the sort of treatment or the research and development landscape look like for future treatments?
1: The truth is that there's just three new drugs have been approved by American regulators over the past 55 years. Mel Spiegelman, who I mentioned earlier, he told me there isn't a lot of money going into it.
3: TB funding is very restricted in the sense that there really are very few players around the world who put any significant amount of funding into TB.
1: He worked on a groundbreaking treatment back in 2019.
3: It was now down to three drugs, all oral, given once a day for six months with a cure rate of 90%. So we got this treatment approved in 2019 by the FDA and 2020 by the EMA because we wanted this to be a program and a treatment that was viewed globally as being state-of-the-art and acceptable to even the strictest of regulatory authorities. And frankly, since 2019, we have been somewhat struggling from a variety of reasons in order to now get this rolled out around the world. Because one would think if you offer this, you know, people would come running for it. But it takes a lot of money even to introduce a new treatment. There's a huge amount of education, a huge amount of regulatory work. You've got to get it approved, basically, in every country around the world. We have commercial partners whom we've lined up to do that. It has to be relatively dirt cheap in order for everybody to afford it. But even the rollout of this type of a major advance takes time, money, and a huge amount of effort.
1: Lucica Dettiu from the organization Stop TB agrees. She pointed out how the lack of investment affects programs in low- and middle-income countries. If we
4: are so much behind in TB, it's because of the lack of funding, and it
1: came through the
4: lack of visibility and understanding of the TB situation. Traditionally, the TB programs at country level are operating with just 30 to 40% of their needed budgets. When you operate with 30, 40% of what you need, sometimes even less, it's clear two things. You leave outside a lot of people that don't have access to the program, to the diagnosis and to treatment. And you leave outside some areas that are not properly addressed. You know, for a long time in TB, programs were um, advised not to focus on children with TB because they don't spread the disease. And in this way, children with TB and
1: extra pulmonary TB was left behind. It's completely unacceptable when you think about that. In Lucica's view, there needs to be a recognition of the problem and practical global conversations on how to solve it. TB actually offers an amazing return
4: on investment because for a dollar invested into TB, you can get back up to $49. If you invest in the treatment, because it's not very expensive to treat and diagnose a a person with TB, but it is a big return because basically you save a lot because people are taking a lot of leave and also you save a lot in avoiding additional infections and so on. So there are countries such as the G20s that can treat and uh, can do the TB response using solely domestic resources. The countries, especially the African region and some of the low uh, middle income countries from Asia, from Europe, as well as from the South Americas and low income countries will still need inputs from donors and bilateral uh, funding.
2: One of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic was the number of vaccines that came out of it, the sort of medical technologies and surveillance, as we've already discussed. What kinds of lessons can we start to learn from that pandemic that might be helpful in tackling TB in the future?
1: So in the short term, of course, COVID-19 was terrible for TB. But there is this hope that in the longer term, it could be positive that the innovations that were developed over the past couple of years that got COVID-19 under control could now be applied to TB. You know, in part, this is just about digital health infrastructure. So basic things that we now take for granted, like a global COVID-19 tracker, where you can see in real time, how many cases there are, how many deaths there are, there's now a lot of pressure to try and create something like that for TB. Because if you get something like that for TB, policymakers can be held to account. They can see how different trials are working. The public has something to lobby their policymakers with. Then there's sort of the more medical stuff we've come up with. So things like small, clever tests. There's even hope that the technology behind the new mRNA vaccines that were used widely for the first time in the pandemic, that they could be applied to develop a new TB jab. You've already got BioNTech, the German pharmaceutical company, saying that they would like to try out that kind of thing. It would be the single most effective fix to the current crisis we have. Scientists reckon a new vaccine that was introduced by 2024 could reduce the incidence of TB by as much as 70% in the following quarter century, even if it isn't perfectly effective. Mel Spiegelman was very optimistic about what could be achieved if TB was prioritized the same way COVID was.
3: I can guarantee you if the same amount of resource dedication is dedicated to TB and the same incentivization is there for the private sector and the public sector to engage, we will eliminate TB. But that's what it's going to take.
2: Okay, so that's all of the drugs and the vaccines and so on. But COVID also showed us that there are various non-pharmaceutical ways to try and curb diseases. Famously, the lockdowns and things. What kinds of things has the COVID-19 pandemic taught us on that front when it comes to TB?
1: There's some really basic practical things that you can see in practice. So hospitals having improved ventilation, having put in place new hygiene measures, that's all really helpful for TB. Public education campaigns have really helped too. If you're a poor person who doesn't have much education, knowing that, you know, hey, if I've got a cough, it might be reason to worry. They don't just wait for it to pass. It's really a big change since the pandemic.
2: So it sounds like there are some reasons to be hopeful because there are lots of things from the COVID-19 pandemic that could potentially be very helpful in surveilling and treating and perhaps even stopping cases of TB. But Avantika, from your reporting on it all, you've been steeped in this for a while, you've spoken to a lot of people. Where do you come down on this? Do you think that there's actually hope that future TB cases can be prevented because of what we're learning from COVID-19?
1: I really want to say I'm optimistic, but actually the more time I spent speaking to people and reporting on this, the more pessimistic I felt. I mean, you need a huge amount of investment. You need a lot of coordination between countries, between sectors. And the thing that struck me was, you know, the pandemic was a big global disruption, but for a poor person who's facing TB, they have disruptions on a daily basis. You could just be in the middle of a treatment and your family has suddenly a desperate need for an extra income. You could be a poor person who's going through TB treatment and suddenly there's a drought or flooding where you live. There's so many things that can disrupt treatment that it sort of comes down to unless we solve global poverty, we don't solve TB, which is just an absurd proposition.
2: That's too depressing a place to end. So I'm going to ask you for... What you think, from the people you've spoken to, are are the things that perhaps institutions, governments could be pursuing to try and capitalise on the lessons of the pandemic? And if you're not going to solve global poverty, that's a much bigger problem. But what kinds of practical things can be done in terms of tackling TB?
1: I think in part it's just about investment. It's just about putting this at the top of the agenda. So the plan that global leaders had in place, spending $13 billion a year, I mean, that would be an excellent start vaccines have to be the number one solution that we try to invest in that we try to get people together to do research on I mean if we can find a vaccine for TB that's the ultimate answer
2: Okay Avantika thank you very much when the first vaccine does come along we'll have you back to explain it all to us
1: Thanks very much Alag thanks for having me
2: Our thanks also to Larissa Hozar Mel Spiegelman Luchika Ditiu, Vidya Krishnan Josefina Campos and Selma Geraldo da Silva. You can read Avantica's full reporting on the resurgence of TB in the upcoming print edition of The Economist and online later this week. Her piece will include the World Health Organization's analysis of the scale of the resurgence of tuberculosis. Find all of that and more at economist.com slash podcast offer. That subscription link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Babbage This Week was produced by Jason Hoskin and Harim Khan, with support from Leonie Tanza. Mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist.